0: Today's text is from Colossians 1 through 17. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, in word or in deed— do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we sing these words, the words we just finished singing, what it means to build our foundation on you, what it means to truly see you as our all in all. God, I pray that this, these words will be true of our hearts. God, if we're honest, There are so many places uh, in our life where we don't build on you. There are so many places in our life where we build on ourselves and we build on our understanding and we build on what we feel. And God, this isn't even said just to shame us, God. We're being honest. And I pray that you would meet us in those places. I pray that you would meet us in all the ways that we don't build on you. And that you you would comfort us, but also draw us to yourself even more deeply and more closely. So that we see more of you, we know more of you, we worship and we look like you. God, I pray you would do that in your word very, this very day in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in uh, a new series. We're out of, we're out of, uh, we're out of Genesis. And this is a, we've been looking forward to this for a little bit because this is one of those series where, and as we talk about idols, idols can be a word that is very, very generic. It's, it's a word that you, if you don't really understand what it means, you almost feel like you can put everything in that category. Or you might think about idols in the ways that maybe as in a lot of the stories we read in the Bible, literally people melting down gold and turning them into false gods and worshiping them. And so it can be easy to go, idolatry seems like a relic from the Old Testament past. I don't really know of any way that we make idols in that way now. And so we really want to take the next 10 weeks and walk through what an idol actually is and walk through what idols in our own hearts uh, look like. And even what do those idols do to us? And what do they do to our relationship with God? Very basically, idolatry is the worship or the serving of any other God. I think we would all kind of get, okay, that's a really basic uh, understanding. More deeply, it's seeking satisfaction and contentment in anything outside of God seeking satisfaction or contentment in anything outside of God. Now, that does not mean that there aren't things that are not necessarily directly related to church or God that you can't enjoy. But there are ways to enjoy things and find contentment in them to the degree that they still continue to glorify God, to the degree that they don't actually declare something about God that's not true. And so there's a lot to to peel away here because ultimately what you learn is this. When you're seeking your contentment, and your satisfaction in God, contentment and idolatry never mix well together. Satisfaction and idolatry never mix well together. So if you can be in the middle of idolatry and still be very satisfied, there's a problem. If if somebody, and hopefully as we get through this series, when we're confronted with something in our life that might be an idol, that should make us very discontented. But if we can be confronted and still find great satisfaction and contentment in something that has been shown to be an idol, then there's something wrong. And there's something that we need to dig into. Because ultimately, as we get ready to dig into this, putting off idolatrous desires is the first step toward real contentment. It's impossible to be content in God and worship something other than God at the same time. It just can't happen. So. The first step in finding joy is to kill the things that are actually killing you. It's actually the first step to finding real joy is to kill the things that are actually killing you. It's not easy, and usually it's excruciating. This stuff is painful because depending on what we've been through, uh, whatever we've created for ourselves to comfort ourselves, whatever it is that we've gotten used to, those are things, that's part of our rhythm, that's our muscle memory. So the the moment somebody says, hey, what you've been doing, and it's been providing comfort for you, but what you've been doing, placing your ultimate trust and contentment in that, that's got to change. That feels, that's that's hard. And it hurts. I'm going to put it this way. And this is something that I really want us to dig into because the reason why idols today, forget about idols, golden calves and stuff like that. The reason why our idols today are so difficult is because of how individual we are. We're extremely individual, we, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it can be an idolatrous thing. What do I mean? Well, when, when I can root everything I do in, well, this is just who I am. And we've talked about this before. Well, this is just how God made me. Well, these are just, this is just how I'm wired. You realize that that individuality actually becomes idolatry really, really easily. And you'll feel feel very uh, content in that. I'll feel very content in that. Well, uh, this is just who I am. Here's the problem. Here's how you know idolatry is at play for you and your individuality. When who I am values take precedence over whose I am values, you're probably an idolater. I'll say it again. When your who I am values take precedence over your whose I am values, then you're probably guilty of idolatry. Because here's the thing, who you are, we're not even arguing whether or not these things are true. The question is, who I am, does who I am define who God is? Or does who God is speak into who I ought to be? There's no question that there are going to be things about us, wirings, things we pick up, social, uh, things that have been kind of socially conditioned. You know, when you're raised as a kid, you take child psychology. When you're in college or in high school and you learn about this. When you're a child, you get raised in these concentric circles. And, and so everybody that's in your, your closest circle, they impact you a certain kind of way. And your experiences, good or bad or otherwise, they impact who you are. The way that you defend yourself, that's been impacted. It hasn't just all been just hard-coded from, from, from nowhere. Our experiences impact us. Our experiences make us good, bad, or ugly, or indifferent. We are influenced by so many other things. So there's a lot of reasons why we are the way we are. But who we are doesn't dictate whose we are. And when we, when we go back to whose we are, that should start recoloring and reconditioning who we are. So it's never an excuse to just be like, well, but this is just who I am. This is just how I am. This is just how I feel. This is just what I do. God made me this way. I've heard people say, well, if God didn't want me to do this, he wouldn't have made me this way. That's really scary logic in a lot of different areas of our lives. Because if you're a person that's just like, I'm a storyteller, so I lie, but I'm a storyteller. That's the reason why I do it. God made me a beautiful storyteller. What do you want me to say? And it might sound crazy, but this is exactly who we are. We find things that bring us contentment and bring us joy and bring us satisfaction. And if those things uh, satisfy whatever my emotions dictate I need, then I'm going, well, yeah, that's good for me. I'm good. I'm fine. God saw fit to let this thing happen. I take great contentment in it. I'm okay. And sometimes the things that we look at, the things that bring us great contentment, they can be people. They can be. Uh, super, it's the reason why we call people who are really, really well-known. We call them our idol. That person's my idol. Why? Because there's something that they do, some value that they have that brings me some level of contentment or satisfaction. And sometimes I might even be living vicariously through them because there's something they're doing that I wish that I could do, but I can't. So I'll I'll actually enjoy vicarious satisfaction through their giftedness, through their abilities. They are my idol. I learned this lesson at a very young age. Because when I remember uh, coming home, I might have shared this before. I came home from church one day, and you know, we were in church all the time, and we come home, it was Sunday. I've got my little, my little Bible, and I set it down. And as I set it down, uh, we had music on, and Michael Jackson was playing on the radio. And I was like, just in heaven. I don't know who, somebody snuck and put it on because our parents didn't normally let us have that on, especially on a Sunday, now that I think about it. But we had put it on and I was, I had it, was playing a little bit and I was like, I go into like the living room and I just start dancing because I used to tell my mom that I wanted to be a breakdancing preacher. So I was like, breakdancing in the middle, I was in the street, I'm going, I mean, middle of the street, breakdancing in the middle of the house. I'm just going to town, I'm going, going, going. Then I'd get up from my dance and I shoot my hand up in the air and I said, Michael Jackson is better than God. I know, some of y'all want to smack me right now, right? <laughs> I just yelled it out, not even thinking, right? Why? This wasn't like some deep desire to worship somebody else other than God. You know what it was? In that moment, what Michael Jackson was providing for me gave me far more satisfaction than God would. In my mind. It wasn't true. But in my mind, at the moment, I was experiencing satisfaction I was experiencing some sort of contentment, and that was the litmus test by which I was judging what I should be taking contentment in, what I should be finding contentment in. And as soon as my mom heard that, the elastic arm of justice came around every single hallway and literally popped the devil out of me. (laughs) And blessed be the Lord for that. And and really, in many ways, while God may not always do it that way, think about this. Isn't that really what's supposed to happen? The moment that I'm finding myself taking deep contentment in something other than God, here's what happens. You only find life in God. So when you find contentment in something outside of God, that thing can't bring you life. That thing will kill you. It will. It will. Because it can't bring or sustain life for you. So here's what you'll do. You'll get involved in the idol. You'll do the things. It might be a fine It may be something that's not bad on its own. You'll be into it. You'll be doing it. You'll be doing it. The problem is you get addicted to it. You know why? Because it cannot sustain. But if it can't sustain, you just keep doing it over and over and over again. Because you justify it in your mind because it's not anything bad. Listening to music and dancing, there's nothing necessarily bad in that. But what happens when this good thing becomes an ultimate thing? Then it becomes an idol. And so that's, as a a kid, I didn't really know all that language. Uh, I just knew that my cheek hurt a little bit and I knew that I probably shouldn't ever at least say that and hopefully get to a place in maturity where I never think or feel that. Who I am values should hold greater value than the whose I am values. Now, here's the other thing we need to think, because we're going to be going through this for 10 weeks. We're going to go through some specifics. Today, we're going to walk through kind of an overarching view of this. But when you, when you think about Jesus, you think about who God is, do you think about him as Savior only, or do you think about him as Savior and Lord? That's, that's going to be the question we have to keep going back to. Do you think of him, do you think of him as Savior or is he also Lord? You know, we titled this God of all or not God at all. Because ultimately, if Jesus is just a savior, then here's what that means. If God is just one that saves me, then that's great. He's a savior, but I get to determine what I get to find contentment in. I get to determine what I find my satisfaction in. He's my savior and he saved me some, some really rough stuff and I'm so thankful for that. And I might be able to spend eternity with him and I'm so thankful for that. But outside of that, I get to determine what it is that I want to do over here. I'll never say he's not my savior. That's the reason why people can say, Jesus, is everything, Jesus, is everything, Jesus, is everything. And then they go out and do everything. Because he's just your savior. He's really not Lord to you. He's not Lord to me. Because I have other idols that bring me satisfaction elsewhere. You see, this is where the who I am, who I am starts defining whose I am. I am a person who loves being saved by Jesus and I love getting involved in every other form of tomfoolery at the same time. Therefore, that's the kind of God that I serve. I've remade another God, really. But that's what idolatry does. So if he is truly Lord, then that means he he actually takes precedence over everything. That means that every aspect of my life is governed by this undercurrent, this truth that says, He is really God of all. Which means even the good things that I do in my life, the good things that I'm a part of, I ensure that they're never ultimate things because once they become idols, they become a false God to me and I'm guilty of sin. You realize that the hardest thing that's gonna be in this series, the hardest thing, it's not gonna be. The, the obvious sinful things that we can talk about. We're going to talk about a lot of different areas of idolatry, and some of them, I would gather most people in this church are going to be like, oh, yeah, that's easy. Big time idol, I can see that. Where the challenge is going to be, is going to be these good things that we're a part of that, we won't, that we'll refuse to see as actual idols to us. And part of it is going to be because of how much comfort those things bring us. And we're going to overlook the damage that they're actually causing because the comfort we get takes precedence over the damage they cause, And so I'm really praying that this series that we go through is one where we all take a step back and go, let me really not just automatically assume that these wonderful things that I'm doing are necessarily done for the right reasons. Let me make sure that they're not actual. How much contentment and joy am I taking out of this that in some ways might be overlooking the contentment I should be taking in God? So when you you consider that, you look at where we are in this passage in Colossians. And Paul is writing to this church in Colossae in Greece. And this church is, is having a really hard time. You got to remember, this church, does, they don't have, Jen was bringing this up uh, yesterday. The, these churches that are getting letters from Paul, this is all like guinea pig stuff. This is all new there really, weren't churches like this. These are all folks that were either Jewish or Gentile who are coming into this new faith movement, this guy, Jesus, that people have been hearing stories about and they're trying to make sense of who he is and what he did and they're believing, but they still don't understand everything. They don't have a perfectly formed theology about things. They don't. So they're getting information from Paul. He's writing them letters saying, hey, remember this and hey, don't do this. Hey, yes, this is true about Jesus, but make sure you don't combine that with this. They're trying to figure that stuff out the same way we try to figure things out. And so Paul is writing this church and this church, they've got issues like all of our churches do. And they're struggling with the fact that before this Jesus thing came on the scene, it was very common, especially for Gentile folks to just combine a little bit of everything that seemed to make sense. You've got this incredibly diverse area of lots of different philosophical thoughts and lots of different uh, religions that are there, lots of different spiritual truths. And so unless they were married to one, it was not uncommon to have several different ideas that you would just syncretize, that you would combine together and go, all right, uh, like a pizza, my spiritual pizza, I I believe a little bit of this over here, but I also believe a little bit of this over here, and I believe a little little bit over here. So what did a Christian have to do? What did Paul have to do? What do we have to do? Help separate all of the things that are untrue and, only, and refill it with only the things that are true. So Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, and they're struggling with a number of things. One of the things they're struggling with is holding on to forms of idolatry while still saying that they believe in Jesus. They're struggling with holding on to some of these other practices. Some of them very, very easily, you can see that they're reprehensible sinful things, um, because that was the issues of the day. And they're, and, they're, and they're wrestling with that while still trying to believe in Jesus. And, and, and eventually something has to give. And Paul is making that clear. So when you look at these first five verses, you can see why he's walking through the things that he's walking through. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, keep in mind, he's talking to people who are believers. He's actually talking to people who believe in Jesus, who proclaim the name of Christ, who believe in Christ crucified and resurrected. They are believing and trusting for Christ to return. They don't understand what it means. They don't understand all the implications, but these are the things that they claim to believe. Paul's not talking to just a bunch of heathen uh, 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 atheists. He's talking to people who believe in Jesus, and he's having to still remind them, hey, since you have been. If you have been raised with Christ, he's making a point. He's saying, you need to actually come back, be who you are and remember whose you are. So he says to them, "Since, since these things are true, there's this idea that we are completely united with Christ, which means our sins died when he died and we rise again, holy when he rose again, holy. So since you have been raised with Christ, there should be something new. Sometimes we have to be reminded there's always kind of this already not yet principle that's super hard to understand, but we see it throughout the scriptures. You've been changed. You're a new creature. You're made again. You're made new. Yet, hey, put that old stuff off, which means some of that's still there, which means some of that stuff is still coming up, which means there needs to be a regular rhythm of, is this idol here right now? Great. That needs to be cut off, which means I need regular relationships to go, hey, are you noticing this idolatry in me again? That needs to be cut right off. But here he is, since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you die and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, so you see, I always say, whenever you see therefore, that tells you what is therefore. So if you look at the first four verses, that's laying the foundation for why it is that these changes happen. If you're truly in Jesus, if you, in other words, if he is your Lord and not just your Savior, then these, this is the new clothing that should be uh, on display. Not only on display, but this is the new mindset and the new heart that should actually be true internally. So he's reminding them, hey, you guys believe this. Jesus has really saved you. But yet you got these things going at the same time. You need to go back remember whose you are. Therefore, Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Then he walks through several different things here that, that, that are easy for us to kind of look at and go, oh yeah, of course, right? He says um, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So these forms, these things that he lays out, these are things that he calls, that God tells us are idolatry. These acts themselves are idolatry. Now, we got to look at the context here. Now, what was happening during this time? Well, you had these ritualistic uh, prostitution cults and temple worship that was happening during that time. So that tells you that people were still living based off of their own sensual feelings. They were like, I love Jesus and I have all these other feelings and I get to, I've been acting on them all the time before. I should be able to act on them now. Specifically, now, this was, this is, there's, a, there's a specificity to this, and then there's a generality to this. But the specificity here is if you were a Colossian back then, there was a great temptation because you had the temple of Aphrodite or the temple of any other goddess that had to do with sexual uh, actions, and people would go and hire a prostitute to, to, to engage in all these different things as a function of worship to a false god. So... Back then, it was really easy to be able to go, oh, that's, that's idolatry because they're clearly doing this in order to worship false God. The crazy thing is most of the men that would go, they didn't care anything about the God. It was the women that, that were doing that because they had been kind of forced into that, which is a whole other story. So, so there's already literally, there's real idolatry happening there. There's this worshiping of a, a other God that's happening, but there's a deeper truth here, right? Because ultimately, when you think about this, when you think about this list of items that's brought up, you think of the items, sexual immorality, that, first, uh, that phrase there specifically refers to illicit sexual acts. Now. That comes from the word pornea, which is where we get the word pornography, but I'm going to tell you, most times, uh, specifically throughout Christian history, people have expanded the definition here in order to try to cover any number of things because it makes it convenient to use when you want to slap somebody upside the head with any number of issues that's there. But this, is, this was a specific word to deal with this type of ritualistic, sexually explicit behavior related to this temple worship. So, so people were legitimately going like, well, what's the big deal? I'm just getting a temple prostitute. it's no, it's no big deal. It's a victimless crime. So they would, they would do this and they're having to be reminded, don't get involved in that. Now, you don't need to include a bunch of other things here because there's several other things that are gonna come up that also hit on other areas of our own emotions and feelings and sexual acts. But this one specifically is dealing with, avoid sexual immorality, something that is considered uh, illicit certain illicit sexual acts. And in this case, back then, it was prostitution, pagan deity worship. We can talk about a lot of what that might look like today. But then the next phrase he says is impurity. Impurity. Now, to be impure goes beyond just the behavior, right? Because the sexual immorality, the the actual acts of doing illicit, illicit sexual things, that part, that's pure behavior. But this idea of impurity goes beyond just behavior. This, this is to say, uh, having a personality that exists in a state of sinfulness. In other words, a personality that wishes to seek its own needs through sin. What it means to constantly look for an opportunity to gratify a sinful desire. And then almost a lot of these words kind of play off of each other because that was the big issue of the day. So when you look at this next word, this idea of passion, when he says, uh, uh, or, or lust, it's the same word, passion and lust, comes from this word pathos, and that word comes from this Greek word pakcho, which is where we get passion. It means having strong feelings. This term means strong emotions or feelings that are not guided by God. This is why it's dangerous to just go, what do you want me to do? I'm just passionate. I'm just a passionate person. God made me a passionate person. I'm a person of passion. I just believe in following my passions. and You know, we think that whatever exists naturally in us must be automatically what God originally ordained for us. But that's actually not true. All of us needs to be redeemed, including whatever naturally occurs in us. So what was happening here, people would have just passion. I want to act on whatever emotion I have, whatever feeling I have. I want to act on it because it just feels natural. My passion is natural. And what he's having to point out is Any passion that's not guided by God will be be actually a form of self-worship for you. Because you're going to passionately just want to fulfill whatever you're feeling in the moment. Without asking, is this passion something that God's passionate about? Is this strong emotion that I'm having, is it in line with the way that God feels about the matter? Because if it doesn't, then that's what some commentarians will call a consuming lust something that would actually consume you, which is why he doubles down again with this next phrase, and he says, evil desire. This is the state of mind that logically precedes lust. Now, why do we have to, why does it, why do you have to qualify evil desire? It doesn't just say desire, right? Evil desire. Because again, you have to qualify. Desire in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Desire in and of itself isn't actually a sinful thing. Desire in and of itself is something that can actually be used for good, but it's evil desire that's there. Here's what we know. Temptation and desire is a normal thing. We know Jesus had it. Hebrews 4.15 tells us. He was tempted in all the ways that, are, that were common to man. The desires had to have been there. The evil desire, not so. See, what makes it evil is the moment that I'm actually trying to find ways to, to the, the, the moment that I want to find ways, this desire for illicit gratification, when that desire is presented to the mind, if it isn't killed, it gets nursed into sinful action. So there's a desire that's there, and I've got to, I've got to like ascertain whether or not this desire is actually a good one or whether it's not a good one. Okay, I've got to figure this out now. There's a desire for something. Okay, if I, in order for me to meet this desire, is that going to take an evil act or is this something that's going to be a godly good act? I've got to play that out. The moment it's presented to the mind, if it's a bad desire, it's got to be killed. If not, it will begin to consume me. And so you you realize that in many ways, this is how idolatry works. Idolatry works by saying, there's something over here that will satisfy you more than that over there. And so if I can draw, if that idol can begin to draw you over, ultimately you end up being the God that you're worshiping. Because ultimately you're saying, I, want, I can determine what's gonna be more satisfying for me. Whatever God has already said, that's all cool and everything, but I know what it is that I want and what I want to feel, and this is what I'm gonna do. And this is why, when it goes to the very next phrase, it says greed. Some translations uh, put it as covetousness. This idea, this greedy desire to have more, but one commentary put it this way. Unchecked hunger for physical pleasure. There's an unchecked hunger. Again, desire for physical pleasure is not bad when it's checked. When it's unchecked, that's when it becomes an idol. When there aren't boundaries, when there are things in place to make sure that I don't slip over to the other side, where now I'm just worshiping self, I'm not worshiping God. See, any good thing you can use to either worship God or worship self, every good thing you can use to worship God or worship self, including the really, really good things. You can take, you know, I didn't even intend to say this, but you know one thing that is a, and and Jen's going to talk about this. You know what is a one great area or one really sad area where people can worship self? Church. Both those in vocational ministries, pastors, those who are in church. You can use church in such a way that you're actually worshiping yourself and not God. You can either use church to be like, well, I go to this church and this is a part of my identity. And so this is it. I could live any way that's happening. I may not even be walking like a real disciple, but I know whose church I go to. Or if you're this gifted preacher or gifted singer or gifted musician, I may be doing any number of other things, but I know what I can do with these hands or I know what I can do with this voice or I know what I can do with my presence. I know what I can do with my personality. And so there's this cult of personality that gets created where it's like, you never need to know how fruitful I am. Just be reminded of how gifted I am. That's, that's how idolatry works. And this happens in any number of career fields. Any number. We've got artists in the church. We've got several professionals in the church. We've got people that work in blue collar environments. All those areas are ways in which we can actually form kind of virtual idolat- idolatrous pillars, idolatrous altars for ourselves. Sometimes it's look at how hard I work. That becomes an idol. We're going to talk about that when we talk about work. Sometimes relationships can be an idol. Look at the fact that I am married or the fact that I'm single or the way that I look at certain people when they're not one or the other. All become idols. But this idea for greed, this this whole section is really pointing out the root of idolatry, which is self-worship. I want what I want. And I will do what I want in order to get it. I want to feel what I want to feel. If I want to be able to feel a sense of contentment and peace, I want to feel contentment and peace, even if it causes grief for others. And this is why as we move, you look at what God says back to this, right? He says, all these things are there. Put those away. And then he warns, verse six, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. That phrase, that passage can sound just like really mean. You know, I know that in today's culture, because people have abused the idea of God's wrath in order to just scare people in fear, we move away from any passages in scripture that bring up God's wrath, but we have to talk about it because it's there. We have to talk about it because that is yet another aspect of God's nature. This isn't just buddy Christ. This isn't just homeboy Jesus. This isn't just, that's my dude, that's my ace, and he's got me no matter what. That's not what this is. He loves you for sure. But anything that's in, that's in you or in us or in our community that actually offends his very nature, he's angry. You get angry, don't you? When things happen that are against whatever ethos you've created for yourself, when you've made it clear what it means to be, to, to be respected and somebody disrespects you, when somebody disrespects you, you know what they're saying? They're saying, this is what I really think of you in this moment. Whatever it is that, that you say kind of makes up like this value system you've created for yourself, I don't care about your values right now. I'm going to call you out of your name or I'm going to treat you in such a way that says, I don't respect you on the level that you require me to. And when that happens, we get upset. We get offended. We want to tell them about themselves, and oftentimes we do. And so it should not be a shock then that God, the one who made you, the one who gave you the same emotional attributes he has, why would you be shocked then that he would be angry, that his wrath would come? Listen, if you don't understand this, get this. There is no greater false God than you. In your mind, there's no threat of idolatry greater than your own self-worship. There is nothing that's going to counter that outside of God himself. And so if that's true, the biggest false God I know is me, and God is jealous of false gods, then why would he not be mad when you make yourself God? Why should we be shocked that he, the scripture says he's a jealous God? I always think like, yes, you're right. Whenever people are dating, really, you know, I don't want to be with somebody that's too jealous. Jealousy, no, 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 I'm not about that. True, I get that to a degree, but it's in your best interest that you serve a jealous God. Because see, the jealous God knows any other God you go after is going to fail you, is going to hurt you, is going to kill you. God isn't just doing this for capricious reasons. He's not just going, oh, you know, I, I, just, I, just, I just want you to just be with me just because, just because. Ultimately, he's saying, I know if you don't kill your idols, they will kill you. And I know and I want what's best for you. I want what's best for you. You think you know what's best for you. We have to tell this to those of us who have kids, or if you've been a kid, or you know small children, ultimately the hardest thing for young people to get, and consequently older people to get, is uh, when you try to tell a kid, no, don't do that, even though it looks really great, they think they know what's best for them. They really believe they know. I'm watching my daughter smirk at me, but I'm not making eye contact with her. They really believe that they know what's best for them. And when they're, very, they're smart and intelligent and they, they have access to things I didn't even have as a kid, so they can go check on things really, really fast, and they really believe they know what's best for them. And you stop and you go, I get it. I know exactly why that's there, but here's the thing. There's so much about the world you don't understand that I do. There's so many threats you can't possibly fathom yet, and I do. And it's not because I'm just so great. I've just lived a little longer. I've just lived a little longer. So because of that, I know certain dangers you can't see, I see. Now, project that out to God. God sees everything. If you really think that there's something about uh, some area of life that you think you want, and God says no, if you really think you're getting ready to go explain to God, yeah, but God, you don't understand. See, if I had this, I'd I'd really be that dude. God, you would really, really love me more if I had that, because I would be so content right now. And he's just looking at you like, you just don't know, do you? You think you know. This is what we do. Sometimes we even try to like tell God something as if he doesn't know. Well, God, you know, you know, my heart, God, you, you know, exactly what I was thinking. You know who I am. You know, we act as if and this is what happens. We're remaking God to be like us. Hey, I felt this. And God, if I felt this, I know you feel this. So you should know this. And you know, I didn't mean anything by it. So we're cool, right? And God is saying, I'm angry because you've made another God. And you found contentment in that other God. And when I'm angry, my wrath is coming. Not because I just want to get you. This isn't just gotcha, God. This is, I want what's best for you. And if you can't go after it yourself, I'm going to shatter that idol for you because I love you too much. My wrath is what's best for you. Because ultimately, God is so jealous, he does not want to see us overtaken by something that can't possibly sustain us. And so his... Wrath comes and Paul warns these Colossians and says, it's because of this idolatry, Christians. He sees they're believers. He's talking to them as believers. And he says, because of that idolatry, the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient. Verse seven, "And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the the following. So again, there's this constant, you see this language used in Ephesians again, over and over again, put off this, put on this. Put off this, put on this. So there again is that already not yet. We're saved and we're part of, he's in that process of sanctifying, right? Setting apart, uh, pruning us, cleansing us, changing us. And it's a lifelong process. Ultimately, discipleship is a lifelong process of rooting out idols of the heart. Discipleship is a lifelong process of rooting out idols of the heart. This is why you don't have church by just listening to a sermon. You don't. This isn't just to get you to be here, wherever. You need to be in a community of people where you have some degree of transparency and real relationships so that when those idols pop up, you trust them enough to be able to go, hey, what's happening here though? You see, when you just do the sermon thing, you hear the sermon, that's great, that was good, but guess what's happening? You are the final judge and jury about whether or not you need to do some changing. Because you get to go, hey, I don't know about that though. So you can do that here or any church. You can go someplace, a sermon is preached, or you're in a group of people where you're just going through the word of God and you're seeing certain things and somebody brings something up. Here's the thing. You can say, eh, I don't know about that, but then you've got other people to go, but why? What's that rooted in? If, if, if this is plainly saying this, but you're having a hard time with it, let's talk about why. And maybe we might be wrong, right? Maybe, maybe there's a way that we've approached this that might be wrong. Help me understand that because at the end of the day, the goal is not to be right. The goal is to be holy. Yeah. And so if we can talk about this and we can go, hey, I just want to make sure that there's no idolatry. That's it. I want to make sure I'm not an idolater because that brings God's wrath. And ultimately, it's not his best. And we're going to see in a minute why it actually hurts not just me. So here he is laying this out and saying, in order for this not to happen, or in order to make sure that you're not walking the way you once walked, Because again, this is all you knew, so this is how you walked before. But now that there's a new operating system, there's something new that's changed in you, this shouldn't be the case anymore. So he's reminding them, and he says, verse 8, But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Now here's what I love about 7 and 8. 7 and 8 basically says this. I'm going to acknowledge all of your wiring. Verse 7, he kind of makes it, yeah, you, this was you. You're right. That was your wiring. That, that was who you were. But you realize who you are doesn't define who I am. So ultimately, yes, I saw who you were, and I came to change who you were. So if you're still who you were, there's a problem. That's a big deal, right? If you become a believer, there should be some kind of change that's happening. There should be something that we see that's changing. I say this to couples all the time when they get married and they're like, you know, or premarital counseling or marital counseling. You know, this person, they're not the same person they were when when we got married. Well, Lord, I hope that's the case in a good way. Now there are other bad things, but ultimately there should be growth. Like hopefully you guys are both going, we want to look more like Jesus as a result of our marriage. And so I hope that the areas that I was really trying to progress, I see real progress happening. At year five, I hope that there's, there's, a, there's a, a deeper desire to root out idols than I had five years ago. Hopefully, at year 10, I'm at a place where uh, I'm able to handle when somebody brings a potential idol, idol in my life to me, that I can receive that in humility and actually start to do something about it. Because ultimately that's what real that's what real growth should look like, change. Growth is never static, it's, it's something that's very dynamic. So that's why God can say, you were this, yep, your wiring was this, your proclivities were this, you used to walk these ways, you were selfish, you were a self-worshipper, you were an idolater, but now, this is not you anymore. You realize over and over again, so it isn't just shaming you because you did it, he's almost saying you're operating in a, you're almost operating out of position because that's not who you are anymore. Because of your muscle memory, you'll fall back into doing a thing. But that's not who you are anymore. You're not this. You've been given new life. You've been given new clothes. So that stuff that you're doing, it's got to be put away. You have to treat it like an intruder and put it out of the house. Now, sadly, today, we're more comfortable putting out people than we are putting out actual sin in our heart. We're good at canceling people than canceling sin. We're good at just going, you know, I don't like what you said. I don't like how that makes me feel. I don't like that that idolatry has been exposed. I've said it a billion times. I'll say it again. Exposure feels like assault. And the moment an idol is exposed, you feel threatened. And so you run. The moment my idol is exposed, I feel threatened. And so I run. And then I start looking for reasons to get angry at the one who exposed it. (laughs) or I look for reasons to get angry, or I look for reasons to go, they can't possibly be an idol. Let me look up as many things as I can because I really want to hold on to this thing. I really want to hold it at the level that I'm holding it at. But he says, put away anger, put away wrath, put away malice, put away slander, put away obscene talk. You know what he's doing right now? Paul is moving now, right? From the individual, that, the individual sexual sin stuff that the guys were struggling with, with the temple prostitutes, yes, those were very individual issues that were representative of some deeper issues. But now he's moving past, beyond just the individual issues. We try to talk about this often. Your faith cannot just be individual. It can't if real holiness is happening and real change is happening, then on some level, how we live and how we function starts to actually lead to what real human flourishing looks like. It's got to be moved outward on some level. And this is where Paul moves them. He moves them through the individual sexual sin, greed, lust, passion, all these me issues, all this self-worship. This is who I am. This is how I'm wired. You get people who are like, I mean, listen, I've heard people say, listen, I'm just... I'm, I'm a sexual person and so that's just who I'm made to be, that's just who I am. Some of us have heard that before. <laughs> this is just who I am, this is just, I can't help it. I just This is my drive, this is who I am, this is who I am. You realize that, that that's, what I, that's what idolatry looks like. I'm led by my, my wiring, this is just who I am. And now he's saying, no, you got to put that aside. And then he says, he, he moves past just your individual stuff, And you look at uh, the end of eight when he talks about all these things not to do, you realize that all these things are things that affect other people now. Your anger, right? Because this is the idea of an anger that's actually, you can be angry about the things God's angry about, and that's a righteous anger. That's why the Bible can say, be angry and sin not, right? Anger by itself isn't sin. Misdirected anger, anger that's, that's actually rooted in something God isn't angry about. That's when sin starts coming. That's when idolatry comes. Because if I'm angry, I'm angry because I think I am deserved a thing that maybe God didn't promise you. And the moment I feel like I'm entitled to a thing and I don't get it, I'm now angry. But God never promised you that. It's not that it's a bad thing. It may be a good thing, but it's not an absolute promise from God. And so because I think that because that's a good thing, I'm entitled to that. Now I'm angry. Check your anger then. Lord, let me only be angry at the things that bring you real anger. Because if I'm angry about stuff you're not, I'm probably on a slippery slope to idolatry. But see, then when that happens, what does anger do? If anger is misplaced, now there's real division between me and the object of my anger. Now there's a massive division that's there. And see, God has called us to himself in order to make us a godly community amongst each other. So your selfishness, your idolatry causes division in the body. Anger, malice... This is this idea of like, I have such deep emotions and anger that I am now thinking through ill will against you. We all been there. Come on, you've been mad at somebody and you're like, I mean, if they had a little fender bender, I wouldn't be mad. Yeah, if something happened to them, you know, and because we deal with that old karma thing, well, you know, God is just getting them because, you know, they shouldn't have said what they said to me last week. That's idolatry. I get it. I'm guilty too. But it's idolatry. Why? Because I feel like I I didn't deserve what you did to me. And so because I didn't deserve that, and if we haven't reconciled it well, I'm just waiting for the universe to get you back. It's idolatry. And then when you look at these next words, slander. I'm so angry. I'm so mad. I haven't dealt with things the right way. I feel like I'm the God of my own life. You had the nerve to do or say X, Y, and Z. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spread all this stuff about you. I'm going to say X, Y, and Z, specifically false things about you because of my own view of myself. I think I should be looked at this way. I don't feel like I am, so I'm going to tell lies in order to make myself look better. Causes division. Filthy language. Again, using words. Frankly, when you're using filthy language, you're using words about fellow image bearers that are completely false. And you're actually blaspheming the very image of God when you do so. You realize that? That we have the image of God. So how we treat each other is a reflection of how we treat God. So if I can use bad language to describe another image bearer, I'm actually blaspheming the very image of God. Filthy language. This isn't, I think a lot of times we look at this and go, oh, this just means cuss words. We can talk about cussing at a different time. That's not, this is talking about filthy language that I use that denigrates the very image of God. That's what this is. And it's always rooted in the form of self-worship first. I feel this way about myself. Therefore, this is how I'm going to treat you. This is how I'll talk about you. This is how I'll ignore you. Which is why when he goes through verses 9 through 11, he goes again. He's moving even deeper to how we relate to each other. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. What does he got to remind us? Not to lie. Because we lie. it's <laughs> pretty, pretty simple. Why do we lie? Why do I want to tell something that's not true? Because there's something that's probably not true of me, and I would rather falsify it than actually be it. There's something that's not true, and instead I'm so worried about what the consequences will be because it's not true of me that I would much rather just lie about the information because at least that way I can preserve the image I want to have of myself. This is one of the hardest things when it's time to reconcile, because when you have two parties and a lot of times there's issues on both sides, but neither party wants to see where their real issue is. Because all of us are struggling with being idolaters. And when you got a room full of idolaters, it's almost like a battle of who has the best idolatry in the room, who can manage their idolatry the best. It turns into a massive battle. So when you're trying to get reconciling parties together, the hardest thing is to get people to see their own stuff. Especially if both have done things that have been bad to each other, then all you can do, you can just focus on the bad things they kept doing. And then when you talk about it, all you'll talk about is the bad things that they kept doing. And then when somebody has to go, yeah, but what about this over here? Well, yeah, but that's beside the point. The point is this. Why? Because you're an idolater. That's why. Because you realize that when you have to take ownership of the stuff that's on your end, you've got to do real work. But you've had this high view of yourself this whole time. You don't want to believe you have to do all that kind of work. I've been a Christian this, time, this long. I've done this these many things. So many people have told me just how incredible of a Christian I am. That can't be true. I can't possibly have to do this kind of work. Don't tell me that I'm an idolater. I've been telling myself how great of a God-worshipper I am. That's our struggle. We write our own press clippings, then we keep reading them. We blog about our successes and we keep reading them and reposting them and telling everybody else, let me just humbly tell you just how godly I am. And so. Paul is talking to these folks because he realizes, because of you, you realize he started out talking about sex and sexual sin and he's moving down into this. Why? Because he realizes that the root of all of these kinds of sin isn't just, ooh, this is dirty, ooh, these things are nasty, sex is bad. No, it's not that. It's all of that is rooted in your selfishness. All of it is. Every single sin that we get entangled in is rooted in our selfishness, in my desire to exalt self. My desire to comfort self. My desire for self to be supreme. And while I wouldn't say it with my mouth, I manifest it with my life. I manifest it in my relationships. I manifest it in the way that I lead, in the way that I love, the way that I hear. I manifest it. And so as the Holy Spirit through Paul has to walk through this, he tells them, stop lying. Stop telling untruths in order to build yourself up. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Why does he have to say that? Because ultimately, all of the things we just read, all these types of, as we talk about idolatry, every form of idolatry exists because either there's something we don't know about Jesus or there's something we refuse to show about Jesus period. So either A, I need to understand more of who Jesus is, or I have to be reminded and convicted by the things that I already know about who Jesus is. If there's idolatry somewhere, there's a lack of Jesus somewhere, period. If there's idolatry somewhere, there is an entire lack of Jesus somewhere. This is why it's impossible for you to be like, I love Jesus and I love this, That's hard for that to be true, because what you're saying is, I love Jesus as my savior, but all these other things are my Lord's. Or honestly, I love Jesus as my savior, but I'm really my Lord. So he has to tell them everything I just told you, all these things, put them off. How do you put them off? By being renewed in the knowledge of who Jesus is, by being renewed in the knowledge of who your creator is. We need to be reminded again, this is why we are in community, because there are going to be times where I'm going to be prone to forget who my creator is. Every time I sin, it's because in that moment, I'm forgetting or refusing to acknowledge who my creator is, and I need you to come to me and go, be reminded of who your creator is. You're looking for real safety, and you're looking for real contentment, and you're looking for real satisfaction here, be reminded of who your creator is because ultimately there's satisfaction there that you might be denying or ignoring and thinking you can find elsewhere. Then Paul points out another area of our idolatry. And he says, he's already been telling you, take off, get rid of the clothes that you had and put on Christ. That's ultimately what he's saying. The old clothes that you have, take them off, put Jesus on. Then he says, in Christ, because we're wrapped in him now, we're, we're clothed in him now. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all in all. Why does does he have to tell us this? See, this is interesting. I mean, Paul starts again with a presenting sin. Understand, there's always the presenting sin. There's always a sin that's on display. Where we all fail is figuring out the sin beneath the sin. So often what we do is we just give a lot of lip talk to all of the presenting sins. Stop doing that. Quit doing that. I told you not to do that. You do that again one more time. So my grandmother would say, do that one more again. Because it's the behavior that we want to stop. But when what what mature Christianity looks like, when you're trying to root out idols, you want to get to the sin beneath the sin. You want to figure out, okay, there's the presenting sin, but there's a deeper issue beneath this. And ultimately what I'm doing, I want to hide from that. So I can change my behavior, and that deeper issue's is still there. It's just gonna look something different. That's again why when you're reconciling, it's not enough to just be like, okay, I stopped doing that thing, we good? No, I need to know that the sin beneath the sin is being dealt with. Have you even identified what the sin beneath the sin is? Or have you come up with a very unsatisfactory uh, answer as to why it happened? Oh, I just, I just slipped up that time, that's all. Oh, it's a mulligan, I, 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 I'll do better next time, I promise. Okay, that that might be true, but I need to know that at least you're understanding what the root of that sin actually is. What's the root of that idolatry there? And it's not just so that I can get mine and be able to tell you, ha ha, I know where your idols are. Mine's gonna come up too. Ultimately is this, we have to have this for each other. I truly want what's best because I know God has what's best for you. And I know that if the scriptures are true, and I believe they are, these idols will kill you. These idols will crush you. These idols bring nothing but God's wrath. So as he uh, walks through, he lays all this out and he says, don't, here's the thing, don't find your contentment in your ethnic identity either. That's a big one. Don't find your contentment in your citizenship. Don't find your deepest contentment uh, in in your socioeconomic status. So that's why he has to say in Christ, there's not Greek and Jew. There's kind of ethnic and cultural background. There's no circumcision and uncircumcision. There's no barbarian or foreigner or stranger and Scythian, this very specific people group. There's no slave and free. Again, this isn't used in order to overlook the issues that are there. Basically saying, don't no longer place your identity, your contentment and your satisfaction in these kind of artificial lines that have been drawn in the ways we separate each other. There's no longer a time for us to use that as the way that we uh, identify ourselves. Don't find your identity, and your satisfaction, and your contentment in any of these. You know why? Because Jesus demolishes our artificial distinctions of religious prerogatives. He gets rid of our, uh, these areas that we have for intellectual preeminence. He gets rid of these caste systems that we create for ourselves. You don't get to take pride and, and find your identity in those things either. I'm educated, they're not. I'm a real one, they're not. Some of y'all know, the real ones know what I mean. <laughs> I, I come from the streets, they don't. That's nothing to take pride in. I come from the suburbs, they don't. That's nothing to take pride in. I'm this kind of theological tradition. Why are you taking pride in that? I come from this kind of church. I come from this kind of pastor. My parents did things this way. I homeschool. I do, look, we can go down all the hot button issues if you want, Why do you take pride in that? Why do you take, why is your identity wrapped in that? Because even none of those things by themselves are bad, but I can guarantee you for a lot of people, they are idols. And so he has to remind them, your identity, your joy, your contentment is in Jesus. Christ is all in all, that's your identity. This is why it should be easy, if we're really growing the way we should, it should be easy when things get pointed out that are idols in us. It actually should be easy. Oh my goodness, man, this is right. Christ is everything in me, and if there are areas of Christ that's not there, I want that rooted out too. Where do you see that idolatry? <sighs> okay, I'm praying about, uh, this needs to be rooted out. I need to do what I have to do in order to root out this idolatry. This, so don't, the thing is, when idolatry is pointed out, don't respond with all the reasons why this thing is still a good thing in and of itself because you're missing the point. The point isn't whether or not this activity or this thing or this thing that I'm a part of, is. it's not about whether it's good or bad. The question is, is it bad for you? Because if it's an idol, it's bad for you now. And see, this is where now you're not doing this as a matter of faith. You're doing this as a matter of muscle memory. You're doing this as a matter of self-protection. And the Bible says anything that's not done of faith is sin. So if you're functioning in idolatry, you very well may be functioning in a form of sin. You're looking at something to bring you comfort and protect you and to save you when only Jesus does that. And in, as a result, these idols, they cause pain and suffering to people around you, to your neighbors, to your families. And so as we look through the rest of this and you look at what Paul moves through at the very end, he says, therefore, now that all that stuff's been laid out, Now that you know what it is, what your selfishness looks like, what your self-worship looks like, what it means to kind of protect yourself through your idols. Now that you see all of that and you see that you're called to something different, that you were saved from that and you're saved to this new way of living, these new clothes that you're wearing, what it means to let Jesus be Lord of everything. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, here's what you put on. Now listen to this list. Because honestly, if you just think through the rules of logic here, All of these things that he's having to bring up by implication are impossible when idolatry is happening. He says, put on compassion, put on kindness, put on humility, put on gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. What does, does he have to tell us this? Because y'all listen, if I'm an idolater, I don't do these things well. Anytime you see a lack of compassion, your first thought should be: there's, some idol- there's an idol somewhere in my heart that is keeping me from showing compassion here. There's something I'm holding on to that's that's precluding me from actually being compassionate to other people. There's something. I don't know what it is, I may not figure it out. And again, if I do the loner Christianity thing, I'll never figure it out. You won't. You are the worst at trying to plumb the depths of your own heart because we all have our biases. I'm the worst at trying to plumb the depths of my own heart. If I don't lay my heart out before other folks who are running after the same prize, then I'm setting myself up to start creating all kinds of narratives for myself and I start lying to myself and I start making myself the biggest idol I know. So if I don't have compassion, there's idolatry. If I don't have kindness, there's idolatry. If I don't have humility, there's idolatry. The main reason why we don't reconcile well is because we lack humility. The main reason why I don't reconcile well Reconcile well is because I lack humility, which means there's a massive idol and it's probably me. I don't, again, I don't want to believe these things that you're bringing to me. I refuse to believe that this is a problem I have. I think this is probably a problem that you have. And don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that every time the problem is me, but what it might, it should mean, and this, you guys think it's just cliche, but this is why we say this. Humility is the ability to say, I will not put that past me. Humility never says, no, that's not me. I would never do that. That's what an idolater says. You know why? Because that idolater has this view of himself. I have a view of myself that says that that kind of a problem is beyond me. I would never do that. That's just, as Christians, when we think about the nature of sin nature, that should be just the dumbest thing we say. We should never say that. I don't care just how long you've been running with the Lord. You have the same propensity to do any number of things outside of God's grace. So why in the world would you go, that's that's just not me. That's not how I was raised. That's not what I've been around. I've always gotten mad when I've ever seen it. I've always spoken out against it when it happens. That's not me. Can't possibly be true. None of that matters. None of it. That says you've put a lot of trust in your resume. You've put your contentment in your resume. You've put your contentment in your past behaviors. And ultimately, your greatest contentment then is your ability to keep those expectations. So when somebody brings this up to you, you don't wanna hear that. That's why humility is a problem. That's why humility we struggle with. Because the moment I have to be humble is the moment I have to admit I ain't got all my stuff together. It's the moment I gotta admit I'm, and it's not just a, sometimes we'll say, I'm not perfect, but we act like we're like 98% perfect. <laughs> I don't have all my stuff together, but you know, like seven out of eight of these things are pretty good. It's just that one thing. We, you know what we don't want to believe? We don't, be- we don't want to believe that there are areas in our heart that's just a wreck. We want to feel like it's just mildly messy. We don't want to believe this area is a real filth. It's why like, you know, if somebody comes over the house and there's, like, socks on the floor. You'll be like, oh, listen, don't judge me too much. There's just some socks on the floor. But let your bathroom be filthy. Ain't nobody coming over your house. You make up whatever. I got the flu, I got the bubonic plague, my spleen, you're touching the wrong part of your body. My spleen's hurting, and I got all these problems you don't really want to come over. Why? Because I don't want you to know that things are filthy over here. Messy, that's okay, because messiness can be fixed fast. Filth takes some work. And I don't want you to know about my filth. So when you start bringing out areas in my life that exposes real filth, I'm going to respond angry. I'm going to respond defensive because I can't be humble now because I'm an idol to myself. Humility. Gentleness. Even if I'm right, even if you have truth, why do you struggle being gentle? There's idolatry there. Because the worst is when you're right and somebody can be harsh and mean. Why? Because your idol is being right. I love being right. I know I'm right. So if I'm right, that's why people can be like, listen, it's the truth. And if the truth hits you that way, then that's your problem. And it's different when it's the actual truth itself that's hurting versus the manner in which you're talking, the way in which you're speaking, the way that you comport yourself when you're engaging, That in and of itself is a form of idolatry. If you struggle being gentle, and I've had people talk like this. Listen, I'm just direct. When I was in the military, this is big for people from different regions, right? If you're from the South, then you're really good at being super, super sweet and super, super shady. Nasty nice, as they call it. Bless their heart. Know exactly how to say, go in, I'll smile at you and completely undress you and make you feel stupid because you can't say anything back because I'm so sweet. (laughs) If you're from the Northeast, we're just real direct up there. That's what we do. We just say what we mean and we mean what we say. I'm from this. I'm from the Northeast. This is what we do. If you got a problem, we just tell you how it is. If you got a problem with it, that's on you. That's not on me. See, that's, again, a form of idolatry. I take great pride in where I'm from. That that takes precedent over whether or not I should be gentle when I'm talking to you. No, fam, you're still in sin. You're actually still an idolater because you take greater pride in where you're from than than your need to restrict that part of yourself in order to be gentle and care for others. That's idolatry. That's why we struggle reconciling. And he finally says, patience, same thing. Pay, whenever we say, you know, I just can't deal with people, I deal with this. I just can't deal with people who do X, Y, and Z. Listen, I've brought this up, some of you who know me well. There are certain conversations that because of the state of our nation and the issues that are happening and things that are coming to the forefront, I have to have over and over and over and over again. And, And everybody in this room, there are certain issues that as soon as it comes up, oh, do we gotta talk about this again? Oh, this person's having issues here. I'm so exhausted, I'm so tired, I don't wanna do this anymore. That's all understandable. That can also be a form of idolatry because there's a degree to which even when I'm exhausted, there's a patience I still have to have. There's a way the scripture says, bear with one another. If I can't bear with you, there's, a deg- there's an idol that I'm still wrestling with. And y'all, this is what makes community, community messy. This is what makes it hard for me. It's hard. Because if you're going to be honest with each other, and we're gonna be real and authentic with each other, there are gonna be the same types of issues that come up. And listen, what we gotta understand about humanity is, these issues don't just go away. We have to keep striving. We have to keep wrestling with them. There is no, why do we keep talking about this? Why is this coming up again? We had this conversation three years ago. Why are we doing this again? Now, there's lots in that, right? Are there repeated things? Is there sin that's dealing with this? Do people have to repent? All of that needs to happen. But at the end of the day, as far as we're concerned, Lord, is there a problem? Do I have a problem with being patient with people? Do I have a problem bearing with other people? Do I have a problem continuing? Ultimately, this means I have to keep showing up, even when you get on my last nerve. I have to keep being present. Because ultimately, if I'm an idol, if if I make myself an idol, then my comfort is the number one priority for me. Period. I need to be comfortable. I need to, if I don't feel, now listen, There's a lot in that. Don't get me wrong. We're not talking about being in environments where you are at risk, being in environments where you can be harmed, being in environments where it's toxic and you can actually uh, suffer great harm. That's not what we're talking about here. But we're talking about in community, dealing with issues, trying to grow into the likeness of Christ, dealing with legitimate idols. When those things are there and you see something, man, there's that same thing again, and that's their idol. I don't feel like dealing with it right now. I just don't have patience. I'm going to be short with them today. That also is a part of our own idolatry, even when you know you're right bearing with one another. If anyone has any grievance, and that's why he has to end, he goes to the end of this, talking about the thing that Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, right? We always say, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And he says the same thing. Forgive others as God has forgiven you. So again, what makes me not able to forgive? And we talk about this. This means what makes it uh, not likely for me to not want to pay them back, get revenge, see just a dessert for a thing? giving up my right for revenge, what makes me not want to do that? Because I'm still a self-worshipper and I feel like I'm owed something. I feel like I'm owed something. I feel like that whatever it is that you've done, even if it's wrong, I feel like there's something, there's a pound of flesh I should get from you because I know what I'm worth. You know, we say that now, know your worth, know your worth. And that's true, like to a degree, you need to know your worth. You are worth what God says you're worth. So maybe understand, know how God sees your worth? How does God define your worth? Because if you start defining your own worth, you might be making yourself an idol too. You might think that, because here's the thing, if I define my worth as I am above having to do X, Y, and Z, and God says do X, Y, and Z, you just created an idol for yourself. No, I will not. I will not have a conversation with that person. I will not deal with these types of issues there. I will not be patient with that person because I told them three times already. I'm not going to do it again because self-worth. That's actually because sin. That's actually because idolatry. As hard as it is for us to have to go there. But I promise you, when we get to that place where we set ourselves aside, when we get to that place where we truly see who we are in Christ and as Christ did everything, then we move ourselves to the side. And then we get to the place where he tells us at the very end, he says, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The reason why we struggle being unified, as much as we'll say we love each other, we love each other, we love each other, real love actually deals with all these other things. Real love looks like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. What does that sound like? The chapter of love in 1 Corinthians 7. These are the things that make up what it means to truly be in a loving relationship with other people. So if I can't bear with you, I really don't love you. If I can't be patient with you, I don't love you. Guys, this also means for those of us, there's some of us, who don't necessarily have the best social cues. There's some of us that don't always know how we come off to other people. And some of y'all know people who don't know how they come off to other people. Guess what? You have to love them too. We have to love, we, we all have our quirks and our idiosyncrasies. We have those issues. But if we start just looking and go, oh, they got that quirk. I don't got time. I can't deal with them. Guess what? You know how that feels when everybody has that same view of you? Now, hopefully they love you enough to tell you About these things because real love speaks truth courageously, but we can't have unity. If we don't have love defined this way, you can't have unity in a marriage. If you don't have love this way, you can't have unity in a friendship. If you don't have love this way, we can't have unity as a church. If we don't have love this way, idolatry will kill every church. Idolatry will kill every relationship. Idolatry kills our relationship with God. And that's why he says at the end, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. So this isn't something we do begrudgingly. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. This is why we say we come in and what do we do? We sing truths about God to him and to each other. Why? Why? because that is how we stay reminded. So guess what? When we're coming and we're singing and we're worshiping, really think on the words you're actually singing and go, is this really true of my heart? Do I really believe this? Because if I don't believe this, there's probably some area of idolatry and broken unity somewhere in my life. Singing to God with gratitudes in your heart and whatever you do, in word or in deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Y'all, at the end of the day, the answer to idolatry, the answer to this kind of idolatry, it's not striving to not be an idolater. It's going to sound very counterintuitive. The answer to to dealing with your idolatry is not, okay, I'm going to work really hard to not be an idolater anymore. What's the list again? Give me the list. That check, that check, that check. Some of us who are very, very task driven, we, we, we struggle with this. And sometimes we can't be talked too well either, because we got checklist items all the time. Well, it can't be that, because I did that. I got that the checklist. Nope, that's not it either. The goal is not let me run down the checklist of all the ways to stop being an idolater. The goal is let me just continually put more of Jesus on. Because you see, when you start going back to who Jesus is and what he calls you to, then every area that's not like him starts getting exposed. And then you go, oh my goodness, my issue is not, I'm not working hard enough here. It's I don't love Jesus enough. I don't. If I'm just being, this is where humility gets hard, right? If I've been a Christian all my life, I don't want to believe that I have a problem loving Jesus. I don't want to believe that because I've been a great professional Christian. I've been really good. at I was raised this way or whatever. Or it doesn't matter. I could have come to Jesus two years ago, but I had such an incredible experience and I've been on fire for two years. I can't possibly have these issues now. No, this is what it is. I've got to know, Lord, my entire life is about constantly struggling, straining, pursuing, fighting for your joy, fighting to understand who you are because every area that I don't know you, every area that I don't love you is an area of idolatry. It's an area of pain. It's an area of suffering. It's in a way that I don't love people well. And when we get that and we understand that, then we can actually embrace each other with our brokenness, embrace each other with our warts, embrace each other in humility, embrace each other in gentleness, and have all kinds of tears in our eyes and frustrations while holding each other's hand because God holds ours. This is what it means. So when we walk through idolatry right now, when we go through these next nine to 10 weeks and we're talking about idolatry, please don't check out please plumb the depths of your own heart and ask what does this form of idolatry look like for me and at the end don't let it be something that you just sit and have this shame on you and go i gotta be a better non idolater the bigger question is lord what about you am i overlooking what about you am i ignoring what about you don't i know because you want what's best for me and lord you not my idol is what's best for me amen amen let's pray Father Paul said that he preaches nothing else, assumed to know nothing else, but Jesus and Jesus crucified. And Lord, I pray that even in, in my life and our life, that, that no matter what it is that we have, that we long for, that we lean on for genuine contentment and satisfaction, God, I pray that if there are issues we have, and there's anything else outside of what you have ordained for our lives, if there's anything else that we lean on that isn't you for our contentment, for our satisfaction, for our joy, God, I pray that you would break it. I pray that you would show us this. I pray that you would impress your spirit on us in such a way that we are able to let go. God, I pray for the good things in our lives that have become ultimate things. I pray that we are able to let them go. God, I pray against the spirit of us wanting to manage our idols in a way where we can have everything at one time. God, you tell us to put it off. You didn't say put it away. You said put it off. God, I pray that we would just throw those things away, that the things that are there, whether it's blatant sin or sinful conditions of the heart rooted in good things, God, we don't want to have anything else be our joy and our strength and our satisfaction but you because we know that everything else will ultimately destroy us, kill us. So God, I let us know nothing else but you, nothing but your love, nothing but your grace. And God, let you be the one as we understand you, read you, learn about you, sing about you, live in you. Then let that be where our humility comes. Let that be where our gentleness comes. Let that be where our ability to bear with each other comes. God, let us not just think I need to do better. God, I pray that we would receive better from you, who you are what you are. God, I pray that who we are is rooted 100% in whose we are. And God, if we don't know you, make us yours right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to this table, this is what we should be able to proclaim every time we come. This should be what we should be able to say, take joy in. This is what we should be able to kind of stop and go, man, I... I'm coming to this table and I'm acknowledging, I'm I'm sharing in this common unity with other believers that are, man, we are all idolaters on some level. We all are, we're like the Colossians. Christians, people who love Jesus, who are trying to follow Jesus, but are still struggling with forms of idolatry. And it might not be the temple over here, but there's another temple that we have erected in our own hearts. There are other temples around here that we engage in other acts and other ways of thinking and living. There are things that we've been trusting in that's not truly who Jesus is. And so hopefully, I hope all of us are sitting here going, man, I see this in my heart. I see this in myself. And I may not know specifically yet, but I I can feel this overwhelming feeling that, Lord, there's still work that you're doing in me. And if that's you, if you realize I have an idolatry problem, I was born with an idolatry problem, I was born with a self-worship problem, and I realize... I can't create a checklist to solve this. And if Jesus hasn't come, and if Jesus hasn't come and rescued me from this, I'm still dead in my idolatry and I'm dead in my sins because they will ultimately kill me. If that's you, then this table is for you. This table isn't for the people that are idol free. This is for the people who acknowledge that Jesus has paid the debt for that idol. And he is the one that's reworking me every time they pop up. So this isn't to come and say, I I got it. I have it all together. This is to come and say, I know I don't have it together, but he does. And I lean on him and I'm broken. Every time I see it, I'm broken continually when I see it. And I move to a place of confession and a place of genuine repentance. And if that is you, then this is your table. If that's not, maybe, maybe you're a believer, but you are struggling. And maybe there's an area you just do not want to repent or you struggle seeing that. Let this time be a time where you let this pass and let this be a time where God's grace washes over you. It is, trust me, even for the believer, it's a sign of real maturity in ways to go, Lord, I realize I've got work to do here. I've got to really come to a place, A, where I see that this is a real problem or, or I see it's a problem, but I'm not moved by that. It doesn't break me. Then let this time pass for a minute, especially as relates to brokenness amongst the body. There are times that you see in scripture where it's if you have something against your brother or they have something against you, don't even come and give your gift until you make it right. Why? Because love is about unity. And whenever there's disunity, there's a lack of love somewhere. And so let that pass. If you're not a believer at all, if you're just like, I don't know if this is it. I don't know if this is all it for me. I like some of this, but this whole idea of Jesus, I like Jesus as Savior. This whole him being Lord of every area of my life, you can have that. I'm okay with looking at Jesus as this really great guy that saved me, has some really good things to say, but these areas of lordship in my life that he needs to have, I just, I'm not ready for that. Then let this time pass too. Because in the same way he said to, to the Colossians, this is what you once walked in, guess what? He wants to meet you where you're walking. He wants to meet you exactly where you're walking. And he wants you to take you to, he wants to take you to verse eight, but now here's where you are. Jesus loves you where you are and he wants to take you to the butt now. So let this time pass. Let this be a time where we're praying, Lord, show me, break me, and then remake me. And let this be a time where this is your first time communing with the people of God, communing with his spirit. As our volunteers come, we remind you that here at, at Icon we do communion by the process of intinction. Oh, you sit down. Kenan, would you come up? No, oh, you sit. Sit right there. <laughs> When church mother needs to sit, we need to let her sit. (laughs) Thank you. Here we want to remind you that we do communion by the process of intention, and we love our members too much to let them hurt themselves in order to do it. And so uh, when when you come, we just want to remind you, you'll come down the middle aisle, starting in the back. You'll take a piece of gluten-free bread, and you'll dip it in the wine or juices you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal. And he took the bread and he broke it. Now just think about what Jesus is doing right now. He's looking at these folks who are going to betray him. He's looking at a table full of idolaters, full of people that in some way will either deny him, run from him, lie about knowing him. He's looking at idolaters, people who have chosen themselves over him. And he looks at them and he says, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. Jesus gave his body for idolaters, not the idol free. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood. Blood of a new covenant. Blood poured out for the remission of sins. Blood poured out for your idolatry. Take and drink of it. And do this in remembrance of me. And this is what Paul tells us. Paul says that every time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until we come. Listen, if you are in a place, if you're in a place where you acknowledge these idols are there and we're a community of people that knows that we are riddled with idols that we are constantly having to battle, then ultimately this is the only thing we can proclaim that gives us joy. I'm proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns, why? Because the only hope I have to have this idol factory that is my heart to be completely and forever changed, as if that tomb is empty and he is returning to finish what he started. This is our hope. This is our joy. So, wherever you find yourself, whether you find yourself broken as you see areas of idolatry, you find yourself overwhelmed, find yourself kind of in consternation, figuring this out, don't sit in nothing but shame. Accept that you are assuredly pardoned and you can come. Be reminded, taste, and see that our Lord, our God, is indeed good. Let's eat together.